In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis of all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, and today I'm joined by my colleague Tamar Hallerman, the AJC's Washington correspondent. We're going to discuss the results of the July 24th runoff and as well as what's next in all Georgia's marquee races. And Tamar, I don't know if you're like me, but it's been a long couple of weeks. A long couple of days. Um, I don't even remember what last week looked like. Do you? I don't even remember what a weekend looks like um, <laughs> because we've had so much news in all of Georgia's top races. And uh, and it's just a glimmer of what's to come. I mean, this is the next 100 days. We have about 100 days until the November general. And it's going to be just a nonstop. I don't know if rollicking is the word, but a nonstop ride. Um uh, between uh, you know, between candidates with vastly different ideals and viewpoints of what Georgia government should look like. Exactly. And you're starting to see more and more interest already from the national level. Um, I was poking around on Twitter before our, our podcast and Time magazine has a whole issue devoted to life in the South on the cover, Stacey Abrams. Um, the New Yorker has a, a story about Brian Kemp and his job as Secretary of State. Um, Trump, yesterday evening tweeted about Brian Kemp defeating uh, Casey Cagle. Oh my goodness, this is going to be a long 100 days. Yeah, and um, I was at a panel recently where where one of the uh, Republican activists kind of asked, well, you know, is this race going to be nationalized? And, and you know, this Brian Kemp helped if this race is not nationalized. And I said, I don't think there's a, <laughs> there's no option. This race has already been nationalized. It is, uh, it is going to be a Trump handpicked candidate against someone who uh, vows to oppose many of his policies. And I think one of the best parts about this race for us as journalists is instead of we've had race after race, you know, 2014, 2010, where for the most part, the gubernatorial candidates from both parties agreed on a lot of the issues. And there was a little bit of mushiness on some of them, but they only, you know, they only starkly disagreed on a handful of issues. In this race, Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams and this is no understatement, or polar opposites on some of the biggest and most important issues in this race. I mean, look at guns. Brian Kemp shows up in an ad pointing gun toward a, an actor. He vows to expand constitutional carry and other gun rights. Stacey Abrams is the first Democratic candidate for governor in Georgia, uh, nominee for governor in Georgia in decades, if you know, in modern history, calling for gun control. On abortion, Brian Kemp wants 
the nation's strictest abortion requirements. He wants to outdo Mississippi and other states that, that have that have passed already pretty stringent requirements. Um, Stacey Abrams has Planned Parenthood's endorsement and fights for uh, and, and calls for abortion rights and 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 says that she'll veto any legislation that cracks down on this. So those are just two of many many issues we can go on and on taxes, religious liberty, uh, economic policy, um, state spending, uh, just about everything, every major issue. Not, not only that, though, but the two of them have, um, you know, they, they've known each other for a long time. And it seems like they've had this history of tussling with one another. Um, so this is not new. I think both of them, in a way, kind of enjoy it. Um, you kind of see it. Like, I, I think, um, you know, when I, I was talking to Brian Kemp when I was down in Georgia at his um, primary night watch party, and he got this glimmer in his eye, you know, when at the thought of, of getting to take on Stacey Abrams head to head. So I think they will make great sport out of this. You're exactly right. Uh, they're, they're, they both have used each other as foils for years. I mean, long before either of them had announced for governor to raise cash, to to royal crowds, to energize their supporters. Um, he calls her a, a left-wing extremist. She calls him basically the same thing on the right wing. Um, and so, and really, uh, you know, this this race does is going to boil down. Everything always goes back to the center, and they're all they're all going to sort of you know aim for the more moderate general election electorate. But it really does base on who can energize their core as well. Um, because Stacey Abrams did such a great job at energizing her core partisans in the May primary with a 76% victory. And Brian Kemp did the exact same thing on the Republican core with a nearly 70% victory. And let's talk about that. Those were, I mean, the word was for both those races was blown. Oh my out. God. I'm looking at the numbers right now. Um, Brian Kemp, 69.45% of the vote. Casey Cagle, 30.55%. Oh my God. You know, it, it wasn't even close. Yeah, it, it wasn't. And we all had seen this was that that the race was definitely trending toward Brian Kemp, even before Donald Trump's endorsement. But Donald Trump's endorsement just changed. the Yeah. Whole and and you, t- you tweeted this great um, graphic, some internal polls, I believe, from the Cagle campaign looking date date by date at, at the, you know, the favorables, unfavorables between Cagle and Kemp. And you can just draw a line exactly when Trump's endorsement came down and just watch Cagle's numbers. Just take a nosedive. Yep. It fell off a cliff. Uh, Cagle was already in, dire, in in pretty tough straits before that, but he, he he and his campaign thought they had kind of turned around a little bit before the Trump endorsement. They had a good debate. Uh, they rallied with uh, Oliver North, the head of the NRA, over the weekend. They had Nathan Deal's endorsement, um, which was no small thing. Yeah, exactly. So they felt like the ship was kind of turning, and then. Um, out of, uh, you know, in an unexpected, I keep on using the word surprise, but it wasn't a surprise to Trump, but an unexpected endorsement. Uh, on Wednesday afternoon, the uh, six days before the election, one tweet from Donald Trump changed exactly, the dynamic. Exactly. Um, and he's been tweeting about the race ever since. So, uh, you know, I wonder if we could see him coming down to Georgia to campaign in, in the next few weeks or months. I would be shocked. Yeah, I would be shocked if he doesn't. And 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 that just speaks to this entire race. This is not going to be – this is a national race where both candidates are going to eagerly accept any national support they, they can get. And this is a big difference in Georgia. I mean, our, our gubernatorial races have not been really nationalized – at least recent ones have not been these nationalized affairs. Uh, and Democrats 
have have while Republicans are usually more eager to 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 rally with national Republicans, Democrats in Georgia have not been. If you look at 2014 when Barack Obama came to town, Michelle Nunn and Jason Carter couldn't have been farther away from him. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks before the election, they 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 didn't even appear with him. Uh, and last year with John Ossoff in the sixth district race, his highest profile outside supporter was not Barack Obama, was not Hillary Clinton, was not Bernie Sanders. It was Jason Kander, a former Missouri Secretary of State who is known for his moderate policies. So, so um, you're not going to see that this year. I bet we've already seen Senator Harris, Senator Booker uh, come down here. I bet we're going to see a lot more national, high-profile national figures come down here stumping for Stacey Abrams. And I can't help but wonder whether that will turn off the kind of independent voters, the voters in the middle um, that these two campaigns are going to have to go after. Um, not only that, but the negative campaigning that we were talking about, um, you know, all of this national attention and money that's going to come with it, that's going to, you know, all these ads that we're going to see nonstop. Um you know, uh, people like Hillary Clinton, people like Donald Trump, they aren't necessarily as popular with the uh, independents that that, uh, you know, there are a lot of them in Georgia. So I wonder if that's going to ultimately help or hurt Abrams or, or Kemp as they seek to win over the middle. Yeah. And both candidates are going to inevitably have to appeal to the middle. Uh, it's going to be a two track two track strategy for both of them, because uh, you're going to hear, you've already heard Stacey Abrams doing this for the last nine weeks since she won the primary. She's focusing on what she calls solvable problems, and that's Medicaid expansion, which she thinks she sees as a more centrist uh, policy. And polls show that that a majority of voters uh, are on board with, um, Georgia voters are on board with Medicaid expansion. She talks about economic inequality. She talks about public school education, you know, generally consensus driven type of issues. But at the same time, you ask her about gun control, you ask her about abortion. You, you ask her about some of the you know more socially divisive issues, and she's going to stick to her, her views, her, her uh, liberal left-leaning progressive views on those issues. Same thing with Brian Kemp. I think we're going to start hearing him talk more about the economy and jobs and, you know, and education and those types of issues. But you ask him about gun rights, and he's going to say constitutional carry. They're not going to back down from what, what got him there. Yeah, one mantle. I'll be curious to see who who kind of moves to take it faster. But but kind of this Nathan deal. Um, you know, let's focus on the state's business rating. Um, let's focus on bringing in the film industry. You know, th those sorts of economic messages have been really popular with voters, including among Democrats. Um, you've heard both Kemp and Abrams kind of talk about this and how they want to continue those policies. But but Casey Cagle was kind of seen, you know, or at least was trying to position himself as the guy who would care on that mantle. Um, and I wonder how closely Abrams or Kemp will be embracing that moving forward. Exactly. I'll be watching Governor Dill very closely uh, in, in his role because he is one of the most popular. He, uh, our poll showed he's, he's the most popular Republican politician uh, in Georgia. Um, he gave Cagle his endorsement, but it wasn't a very effusive endorsement. Um, it wasn't this big, huge rally. He, he didn't go on Cagle's fly around tour. He didn't appear uh, in any robocalls that I know of, and he was in the end of one of Cagle's campaign commercials, but it was just footage from his his uh, his announcement. Um, so he didn't really play. He gave his endorsement, but he didn't really play it up. Um, I, there was a unity rally for Republicans on Thursday night, and Governor Deal uh, offered Brian Kemp his support too, his unqualified support. So we'll see exactly how much of a role Governor Deal plays in the final weeks, but yeah, he could be instrumental in helping. The, the sort of more mainstream branch of, of Republicans. But also, you know, the, the, the counter to that is 
his endorsement didn't exactly help um, Casey Cagle that much either. Now, of course, that was going up against a Donald Trump endorsement, and Donald Trump is singularly popular among Republicans, and he has this dramatic pull uh, for for runoff voters. Um, but I think I think you know if if you're Brian Kemp, you look to use Governor Deal to that more centrist crowd. You you deploy him to places. You deploy him to 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 you know Metro Atlanta and to some swing voters who might be concerned with both candidates' policies. Yeah. Um, and, and speaking of Metro Atlanta, I was hoping, Greg, you could tell us a little bit about how the Republican vote for governor broke down in some of those counties. I know Casey Cagle had really been counting on doing well in Cobb County, um, kind of those North Atlanta suburbs where, you know, kind of the the well-off educated Republican voters that, um, you know, that, that Cagle really needed to do well in, those kind of Hunter Hill voters. Um, how did he end up doing there? I mean, the, 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 the map kind of says it all. It's such a stark uh, showing for between those two candidates. Casey Cagle only won two of Georgia's 159 counties. He only won, the, the, one of those counties was Monroe, where where local voters have been upset with Brian Kemp for a long time about a, a border dispute with Bibb County, and the other one was Stevens County up in North uh, East Georgia, where a prominent Republican had sued Brian Kemp. Those are the only two counties he won. <laughs> and, and, and not on that list, Greg, is Hall County, Casey Cagle's home county. Exactly. Um, and, and Hall County's importance in these types of races can't be underscored uh, enough because in 2010, Hall County was pretty much the sole reason that Governor Deal got the GOP nomination. He won a big majority of it, of Hall County, his home county, in the primary. And then in the runoff, he won 80% of it. So that just shows how much support he had in his home home county. That was, that was enough votes to lift him over Karen Handel in that 2010 race. Well, flash, flash forward eight years, Casey Cagle's also, his home is also right, right around the corner from Governor Deals in Hall County. He gets only 45% of the vote. Yeah, not even close. Not even close. Pretty amazing stuff. Um, and how about the and, and I was hoping we could also shift and talk a little bit about the LG's race because I was um, helming the AJC's live blog last week on election night. And that is the one that kept us up until the bitter end, um, you know, and, and I don't even think they've actually been able to declare the race yet because it's been within half a percentage point. Yeah, I mean, that's the cliffhanger of the night. And I think we went into the night knowing that one would be close because all the internal polls, look, K- Casey Kickle's aides and his, his his supporters themselves were saying over the weekend that the race is pretty much over, that they're going to put a good face on and, and march for it. But they, I don't think anyone saw this type of blowout, but they all they all kind of figured that he'd, he'd go down, um, he'd lose that night. But it was this race, this race for number two, where the internal polls showed it seesawing back and forth. They showed Jeff Duncan ahead, then they showed David Schaefer ahead, they showed Jeff Duncan ahead. In the end, what really helped Jeff Duncan was about $3 million, which is a tremendous amount of outside spending. $3 million in outside spending, slamming David Schaefer, painting him as corrupt, questioning his his his, finan- his finances. I mean, all sort- there was whisper cameras, all sorts of behind-the-scenes stuff um, that really tarnished... Uh, that Schaefer, also Schaefer's ties to Casey Cagle might not have helped either. They're, they're both allies in the, in the state Senate. And when, when the, you know, when the guy you're allied with gets only about 30% of the vote, you might be in trouble. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, as you wrote after the election, it was not a great night for the Capitol crowd. Um, you know, the the lobbyists and, um, you know, people who work in politics, who who kind of look for the status quo, who who want that that sort of business friendly Republican 
um, this was not a good night for them. Yeah, it was really interesting. I was over at uh, Brian Kemp's campaign party in Athens, and I was there till one or two. I was there till late. And um, it was funny seeing uh, the, the sort of late arrivals. There was a lot of lobbyists and business interests and other folks, some lawmakers who who showed up around midnight, who showed up around 1130, who rushed over from whatever they were before, whether they were at home or whether they were at Kegel's party or wherever, um, you know, to show up and make their presence known. Uh, there's going to be a lot of that. There's going to be a lot of people who spent, I mean, Casey Cagle raised an astonishing 10.5 million plus. It will probably be closer to 12 million when the final tally is up. And a lot of it was from well-connected business interests. And a lot of them are now looking to pump Brian Kemp's campaign up and maybe Stacey Abrams' campaign up with cash too to hedge their bets because November, this isn't anything goes race. I mean, you know, polls show the few polls we've seen about a general election matchup show both those candidates within the margin of error. So, you know, if you're if you're a very connected business interest, a road contract, whatever. You've got to make sure you've got to look, you've got to hedge your bets. Absolutely. Um, and, and you know, I, I don't think we can emphasize enough just how much of a culture change there's going to be um, coming off of, um, you know, eight years under um, under Governor Deal and going to either Brian Kemp or, or Stacey Abrams. And for a lot of these these people who who are, you know, rely on politics to, to make a living um, either way, you know, it's going to be a big shift. I, th- I believe it was you or our colleague Jim Galloway who compared it to um, to uh, when Sonny Perdue defeated Roy Barnes back in um you know, 15, 16 years ago. Um, and just the yeah. sea change that's yeah. going to happen at the, at the Georgia Capitol. Yeah. Change is coming. Um, and change could be coming in, in the in the competitive uh, suburban house districts, right? I mean, you've been following that as closely, uh, more closely than anyone else. Uh, what's your take on what happened Tuesday night in those house contests. Yeah, um, those were those were two races that also were not called until closer to midnight. Um, and what was so interesting, so we had two Democratic runoffs in the sixth district, which is uh, Fulton County, Cobb County, DeKalb, and then in the seventh, which is Gwinnett and Forsyth counties. You had two Democrats in each race who, uh, you know, first time running for office, did not have much of a of a name beforehand. Um, you know. Uh, each race had a female candidate and each race had an immigrant candidate. So it was interesting to see, um, you know, there was not a ton of, there's not a ton of uh, polling going on in this runoff. So it really did feel like an open race. Um, What we did see coming out of it is that the two female candidates ended up prevailing. Lucy McBath in the sixth district, she is a national gun control advocate. She had lost her son in, in 2012 to gun violence and, and in the years since had become a really prominent um, presence on on cable news, stumping for Hillary Clinton, talking about gun control. Um, she won in the sixth district. Is going to take on Karen Handel in a first race that pits uh, two female candidates against one another in the fall. And then in the seventh district, we're going to have the battle of the budget wonks in the fall between Carolyn Burdeau, who's a Georgia State University professor who ran the the. Uh, Georgia Senate Budget Office for a few years um, against Rob Woodall, uh, the incumbent Republican who who is very much a, a budget wonk. Um, so I, I think voters sent a message. Um, you know, they they feel strongly about having female candidates in the era of Me Too, um, but they are up against a lot of money. 
Um, both Handel and Woodall have spent uh, the spring and summer fundraising. Um, neither one of them faced any serious competition for their um you know, for their party nominations. And so it'll be interesting to see whether either challenger um, can really get much momentum in, in these districts that are pretty traditionally Republican. Yeah. And these races, just like the governor's race is going to be nationalized, these are going to almost be hyper-nationalized, right? We've, and we've already had some big names um, supporting uh, the Democrats and probably, I'm sure, uh, Karen Handel had Donald Trump stump for her last year. So I'm sure that support hasn't gone anywhere. So this is... Um, this is going to be a hyper-nationalized race as well, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, last week we had Hillary Clinton. After after the 6th District race was declared for Lucy McBath on the Democratic side, you know, she tweeted her support. Earlier in the week, she'd recorded a, a robocall for, for Lucy McBath. Um, and you've already seen in a lot of Karen Handel's um, campaign messaging, even before she, she knew who her opponent was, talking a lot about Nancy Pelosi, um, a message she used very effectively against John Ossoff last year. Um, we've seen a lot of the, the gubernatorial ads starting to bring up Hillary Clinton, George Soros, all these big national figures, <laughs> always Nancy Pelosi. Um, so we're going to see a lot of that. Um, something else to note is that, you know, Lucy McBath, she was affiliated with the um, with the gun control group Every Town for Gun Safety, um, you know, before she ran for Congress. And this is a group that, that poured more than a million dollars into the primary race, which is very rare. You really don't see that. Spent more than a million dollars to get um, Lucy McBath's name out. I'm sure we will see them in force coming up in the fall. Um, and then, you know, as well, groups supporting Karen Handel and Rob Woodall. So um, I'm hopeful that, that some of these races will heat up, that we'll see a little more going on. Yeah, I mean, so what are the contours? Are the, are, are the Democrats kind of running farther to the parties left than we have seen in the past for, for, for mainstream, you know, for, for credible democratic challengers. Absolutely. And, and, you know, John Ossoff, you know, last year he'd kind of gotten into the race as, as a resistance candidate to, to Donald Trump. And that's why he really kind of took off. But toward the end, he really shied away from, from wanting to talk about the president, from wanting to, to kind of take a hard left turn on a lot of issues. These candidates that we're seeing this year in the sixth and the seventh, Carolyn Burdo, Lucy McBath, um, they are not shy about criticizing the president, especially on issues like immigration, health care that sort of thing. So, um, and, and they've definitely, you know, talked about wanting to expand Medicaid to protect the Affordable Care Act, abortion rights, immigration, DACA. Um, so, so they're not going to be shy about, about moving to the left. Um, and, and I'm sure, um, you know, that's something that, that Woodall and Handel are going to capitalize on as they, um, you know, look to campaign for re-election. So just like in the governor's race with both candidates, appealing to their cores. What happens, uh, what what do you think happens to the middle in this contest, these contests? I mean, who knows? You know, for for a long time, I think there was voter fatigue, especially after last year's um, six district special. People wanted to tune this stuff out for for a little bit. So it'll be interesting to see what folks do to kind of move to the middle. Um, Democrats from Stacey Abrams on down, um, they see Medicaid expansion as a winning issue for them. Um, I'm, I'm sure we're going to hear more talk about that. Um, and, and it'll be interesting to hear, um, you know, just how much we start talking about the economy and jobs. Karen Handel has indicated that she is going to be talking about the tax bill all day as she campaigns for re-election. They think that's an issue that can really appeal to especially these, these well-educated suburban voters in districts like the 6th. So I think we'll see a lot of that. 
And tomorrow, both of us and our entire team at AJC Politically Georgia, we will be covering every twist and turn. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.